Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest or guest to share their experiences of being a person of color and thriving in white spaces. Today's topic, COVID-19, coronavirus, that Rona, SARS, COVID, COV-2, I don't know what you call it, but COVID, COVID, COVID. That is the conversation that we will be having today. Did you know that African-Americans and Hispanic Americans are more likely both to be hospitalized because of COVID, but also our death rate is much higher. It's been said that when white America catches a cold, black and brown America catches the flu. As a figure of speech, that is very true as it relates to COVID at this moment in time. And our guests today are on the front line, both in the laboratory with our government, but also in the hospital. Dr. Susie Lopez is an assistant professor in the divisions of hospital medicine and community and global health equity within the Department of Internal Medicine at Rush University Medical Student. She is passionate about training medical professionals about bias and its impact on medical care and health equity as a diversity officer for the Internal Medicine Residency Program. She's been on the front lines of COVID in the hospital since March of 2020, so right at the beginning, and has been providing information sessions and answering questions for communities of color. She's also been advocating for resources for communities disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 and shedding light on disparities through her writing as a public voice fellow with the Op-Ed Project and as a guest contributor to HuffPost and MSNBC's American Voices with Alicia Mendez. Dr. Lopez received her Bachelor's of Arts degree from University of Michigan and her medical degree from the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Medicine. Our second guest is Dr. Ovita Fuller. As an associate professor in microbiology and immunology and the director of the African Studies Center faculty in the ASC STEM initiative at the University of Michigan and an adjunct professor at Payne Theological Seminary. She is a career virologist and Dr. Fuller's laboratory team and interdisciplinary collaborators have published studies of early events in the replication of herpes simplex and influenza. So she's been studying viruses for a long time. She's a Ford Fellow uh, liaison for the state of Michigan and teaches University of Michigan graduate, dental, and undergraduate students about human virus pathogens. Notably, she was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. Dr. Fuller is on the FDA's advisory committee that recently approved the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. But she did not vote with the majority on both vaccines, and she'll share a little bit more about that later. Dr. Fuller earned her BA and PhD from the University of North Carolina and completed postdoctoral training at the University of Chicago. She's received numerous academic and community awards and is the inaugural alumnus of the Ansbacher Women and Academic Leadership Program at the University of Michigan's Medical School. She's lived in African country of Zambia in 2013 as a Fulbright Fellow to conduct research on 
HIV and AIDS. She informally mentors and connects a range of students and faculty in academia. She's married to Dr. Jerry Caldwell, and they are parents of three young adult children. Daughters, welcome to the, to the podcast. Our guest daughters, Dr. Lopez and Dr. Fuller. Ooh. Great to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. So let's just start a little bit of talking about, I mean, both of you are really working in professions that is uh, rare air, as I call it, for people of color. That my guess is you look, look around at your colleagues, that you are one of the few dots in the room. And I would love to hear you talk some about your experiences of being the dot, both the joys and the challenges. Why don't you start, Dr. Fuller? Oh, you want me to start? Sure. Yes, uh, being the dot, I, I certainly appreciate that title um, mm-hmm. for this podcast. Um, I was actually hired at the University of Michigan as the first African-American biomedical scientist in the medical school, as I understand it, on the tenure track. And um, it was, but that that didn't, I I guess all my life, that's kind of been the case in schools and and other places. Um, And people tend to want to say you're special and you realize you're not special. You're just a regular old person and you just uh, have the supports from your, at least for me, from my family to be who you are. And that allows you to navigate in ways that perhaps um, you might not be able to if it had not been for a supportive family. So yes, for me, it's it's being, I've been the dot for a long time. And that's, I think, partly my one of my incentives for trying to make space for as many other people as possible, such that um, this will no longer be the case. Even in grad school, I was looking for those faculty members who look like me. And I couldn't believe that. Maybe I'm the only one that wants to do science. I can't believe that. And mm-hmm. I found them. They were just in industry. So it has been a journey, but it has been a blessed one. And I just don't want anybody else to go through it the way I've gone through it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Dr. Lopez? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's similar experiences. Um you know, especially, I mean, being an undergrad at the University of Michigan, you're in some of those science classes where you're you're probably the only brown person sitting in that room. And um, I think being on the kind of what I call the other side. Now I do a lot of medical school admissions as well as res- interview incoming residents to the internal medicine program. Um, when I do get that honor to like interview people of color, uh, to come over on my side, join us. And, and um, a lot of them tend to ask the questions like, what's it like? And I tell them, I think I wish I would have known, but uh, but I tell them, I was like, the further up you go in your training, the less and less you will see of yourself. Mm-hmm. And it just, I think knowing that kind of helps kind of sink it in and, and adjust expectations. But it, I think there's, um, it's a combination of, being honored to be that other person on the other side that they're able to identify with and provide some of that mentorship. Um, it's also, it can be a little lonely. Um, you sometimes do get that hashtag minority tax effects happening, um, trying to be a voice for others like you or patients from your community. Um, so I, it's a blessing, but it's also a responsibility. One of the things, one of the ways that it seems like that you cope, Dr. Lopez, is by being a guest contributor to the Huff Post. 
Um, and so being able to kind of journal and write and that whole thing. And recently you wrote an article about uh, the, the black brown tax uh, with COVID. And uh, I'm just wondering what has life been like for both of you um, as uh, black and brown women in the middle of this global pandemic? Um, I guess I'll try and answer that. Um, so my article, I think, was about that there was this, there's a lot of hidden taxes that come along with this pandemic. A lot of things that mm -hmm. we knew were important or we knew were an issue or a disparity, and it just kind of brought it to the surface or just really just put it right in front of our faces. Um, and But one of the things is because there's so few people of color in some of these spaces, not to say that the experience of some of the nurses or doctors or other healthcare providers that, you know, it's difficult um, to work in the hospital or in the clinics right now um, to provide support for patients who are feeling very alone, um, trying to make sure that we're connecting with families at home um, and still managing all that while trying to take care of the patient themselves. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, just trying to let people know that there was an added layer that sense of responsibility it, and just seeing, you know, if I walk down the hallway and I see, you know, a couple of years ago, there maybe would have been, you know, on a, in a row in a hallway of 32 beds and 32 bed unit, I maybe would have seen two, three, you know, Hispanic names. Um, but when you walk down that hallway, especially, you know, that that's the COVID floor and you're seeing close to 60, 70% of those names be names that, you know, could have been your aunt, your uncle, it, it, it hits differently, mm -hmm. especially when you feel like mm -hmm. you're trying to give those messages out to them and just continually seeing the, the same patient populations impacted. It, it's a little, it's disheartening. Understood. Thank you for that, Dr. Lopez. Dr. Fuller, would you want to chime in here at all? Uh, similarly, when um, one looks at the data and realizes that um, especially early on, um, and, and I show this slide often in my presentations where uh, in Michigan that we might be 14% of the population, but some 40% of the people who died, and this is African-Americans who died early on from COVID-19, or in Chicago, the stats were terrible, or anywhere you look. So, so realizing that um, coronavirus is a respiratory virus that is so easily transmitted and that if we thought HIV was dangerous, this thing is, or we think flu is dangerous, this is even more so because it's easily transmitted. And at that time, we didn't even know how easily it is transmitted, but it, it's like, it's so, so easy to be, to go from person to person. And that it, and we people of color being people who interact, you know, you want to be with your aunts and uncles, you're you're in households with people, or if you're not, you want to go mm -hmm. to see them. And so how we had to really get this word mm -hmm. out that mm -hmm. you have to pay attention, that, that we don't have a cure, we don't have a real good treatment. The best thing you can do, you must do this. This is not an option. You have to stay home. At that time, we were shut shut in or, or sheltering in in Michigan, but we had to work really, really hard because this was something, as, as Dr. Lopez has said, that you realize it's your responsibility because you have been given the information that you need to get to the people, all people, but particularly your people, because they may not be getting it in the same ways from somebody else. You could see those injustices about how difficult it was for 
people of color to, to qualify, if you will, for a COVID-19 test when we didn't have them very, very apparent. So for me, it's it's been a huge responsibility, one that you, you asked how we cope. I, I know that I cope through my faith. Um, you may not know, but I'm also an ordained uh, itinerant elder in the A&E church. So I've pastored for seven years. I don't do that now because I travel a lot. But that for me has been a place where I say, I know that what I've been given and what I've been trained in and my experiences have prepared me for such a time as this. If you could think my whole life has been to get to this point. This moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, and I think too, the other piece of it is that my place or station makes me essential, but I'm working from home. And so I made a choice personally where, when I wanted to start isolating. And so every time that my university has isolated, I've had been home probably a week because I've made that choice for myself. And, and, and so there's a certain amount of privilege that even comes with SES. So all the places, so we shut down, right? But there were places that were still open. Grocery stores, Walmart, the convenience store, the housekeeping um, in the hospitals. and But there, there were people who could not stop working, both because of what they could, had the capacity financially, but also because their job required them to. And those people were disproportionately people of color. Uh, that's right. And, and so there's where the, um, the social class thing meets institutional systemic racism. And plays a role in the spread of this among African-Americans. I don't believe that our rate has been higher because we've been any less comfortable. Because we all know that black and brown people are the biggest germaphobes in the world. Right? Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, there was that beginning rumor that uh, black people couldn't get COVID. It's like, oh, Lord. So there's that. But, but nevertheless, it really is about this other thing as well. And the multi-generational household. And I think you mentioned that in your um, in your piece, uh, Dr. Lopez, that we have a space now in our home that's the quarantine room. But yeah. if you all are, if you are living in a space where you don't have that kind of uh, square footage, then how does one quarantine if they're close contact yeah. and, or if they have actually need to isolate? Yeah, I think that was my big, that is still my biggest critique of the messaging from um, the government, the CDC. As soon as we knew things were going to shut down, it was stay home, stay home. Mm-hmm. There are people who can't stay home. When mm-hmm. they say self-isolate, you know, I had patients who were, I was like, do you know what self-isolation means? And they're like, well, no. And I'd be like, okay, you can't share a bed. You can't share food, like little nitty gritty things like that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. My husband can move over. And I was like, you know, to them, you know, <laughs> I'm not sharing a bed. It's just me and my husband. So now we ask, who do you live with? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? How many people, you know, to a room, to a bed, are you able to self-isolate without, you know, mentioning all those little nitty gritty things, because if they can't, sometimes there's still resources, um, depending on where you're at. Um, The city of Chicago did have for a little while, um, and I believe they still have, if you can't self-isolate, if the logistics of self-isolation at home are not realistic, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, they would set you up in a hotel for the isolation period. Um, Now I think it's a different setup, but 
you know, if, if you don't understand that and they go home and they're like, you know, you, you're talking to moms and they're like, what do you mean? I can't cook Thanksgiving's coming up. And you're like, I'm sorry. They're going to, they're going to have to baby you. They're going to cook for you separate plate. Um, so that's still my biggest critique is that the messaging, if, if you can't stay home, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. actually, what information do you need to actually protect yourself? That's good. So let's talk vaccine. And um, I, I would love if Dr. Fulda, if you could just start off kind of anchoring this part of our conversation with talking about kind of the basics about the process and how does a vaccine come to volition? Like I said um, earlier to you all, that my journey to the vaccine has been an interesting one uh, because initially I was all about, I don't trust them and I'm not doing that. And even when I was consulted in my workplace, I said, oh, Black people not doing that. Just kind of just like that full <laughs> ebonical, um, right? And, um, and and so, and, and part of it was just what I like to call, I didn't coin the term though, healthy cultural paranoia, that medical systems have had a complicated relationship with Black and Brown people. And so could you just anchor us in the facts about Operation Warp Speed, if you will, and and tell us a little bit about the FDA um, process since you were in the room where it happened. I can tell you what I know, okay? Uh, but uh, there's a lot I do not know. And um, I think you mentioned earlier that I was um, on the panel for both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And just for the record, I did vote no. I was one of four votes for the no for the uh, Pfizer out of 21, uh, 17 yeses, one abstention, four no's. And then I voted yes for Moderna, but I voted no for Pfizer, not because I'm against vaccines. I think vaccines are wonderful. I travel, I I do uh, work in in, uh, Southern Africa. So I've had almost every vaccine that they're, that I think they've made for a lot of things. And they do, vaccines are amazing developments. I voted no because the information that was coming forth about Pfizer did not answer the questions. And there wasn't an opportunity to ask questions that I thought were very key to having that kind of buy-in that you were stating Black folks weren't going to do, because I'd heard that also because of all the things that have happened to us and Black and Brown people, we're not going to trust this. And yet it's so critical to trust medicine and to trust vaccines. So I was trying to get information so that as one of the two uh, uh, at least African-Americans on that panel, we would be able to say, yes, it's okay to do this. Or, you know, if you do this, do this. So Operation Warp Speed was part of the past administrations, um, or the, I guess, last couple of days, that the um, administration for the last four years to get to a vaccine uh, because of the need. And yet when it was conceived, it wasn't even admission that COVID was here. So, you know, I'm like, mm. I, I'm not going to get political on you. But the point is that it was a time where scientists and researchers, uh, instead of going, par- going parallel, where you each do your own research, they began to collaborate to apply techniques that have been um, approaches that have been researched for years, but had not been applied to viruses to developing a, an antiviral or a vaccine for COVID. So these delivery systems, which is messenger RNA in a little bit of fat that have been done for cancer, 
therapy was now applied to, to vaccines. And so we got to it because of the cooperation and because of the level of funding that came from the U.S. government to allow there to be no, it's like all stops were removed to allow the research to go forth. And so um, the requirement of the emergency use authorization is that you have at least 50% protection by the vaccine and you have it in people for at least two months at a minimum. And if you have something that shows 50% efficacy over two months, then you can get an emergency use authorization. And so that's what many drug companies or companies set out to prove. And that's what where the Pfizer and Moderna data came out. When it comes to FDA, when it comes to the advisory board, we are an external independent board that uh, it's made of scientists with expertise, but we're not part of FDA. So those two companies and others have been applying to the company with their data uh, after they saw the results. And FDA evaluates it, summarizes it, and then sends it to us as an external group. And we were not in the same mm-hmm. room. This was all done virtually. So I, I was at the table, but I really couldn't see my colleagues. And so the idea is, does this Uh, do the benefits of this vaccine outweigh the risk of this vaccine? And so their data showed us that the side effects uh, could be managed, um, that the efficacy was up to 95%, which is great if you get the two shots, meaning that you're protected and you're protected. And this is so important. You're protected against disease and disease symptoms. We do not know if you're protected against infection. So what the vaccines are doing is they're preventing people from getting very sick and dying, which is huge, and clogging up our medical facilities such that everything stops. If if I if I needed um, if I needed a procedure to look for something else, if I can't get to the clinic or the hospital, then I may end up succumbing to that thing because COVID has clogged up our patients have 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 first priority. So the vaccines block disease and symptoms, but we don't know if they block infection. So they're not like every other vaccine that we take. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was one of the issues that needed to come. Like, like, uh, like so for an example, um, a month. That's right. Rubella. Measles, mumps, rubella. Right. If you get that vaccine as a mm-hmm. child, you'll never get measles, mumps, or rubella unless something goes wrong. Or chickenpox. These vaccines block infection and disease as far as we know. But the, the COVID vaccines are blocking disease. We still have to mask up and distance and do those things because we may be carrying the virus, which can go to someone who's not vaccinated. So that's what the approval process was about. This is for emergency use authorization. There's no liability of the company nor the government uh, in terms of something occurring. But the uptake has to be high because it's one additional toolbox in helping to get rid of or at least to manage COVID. I think COVID's going to be around. We have to learn to coexist with it, like we coexist mm-hmm. with influenza, and we just need to use all the tools that we have. That's helpful. So, what led you to vote yes for Moderna for the Moderna vaccine? Yes, good question. So, first of all, when I got off the phone that night or off the virtual platform, uh, we had been told that we would be able to explain our votes, that in the normal process, you vote, you have your votes revealed, and then you get an explanation. So I was sure we were just going to go on, do the explanation, and then have another vote after they realized there were questions 
that had to be answered. Like, does it block infection? How long does it last? I mean, just really simple questions that are essential for buy-in. But the mm-hmm. chair closed the meeting. I was like, what? So I was shocked. I was like, are you kidding me? I was only one of four votes. And I was the only one that voted no, not because of the younger age of bringing Pfizer wanting to use it in age 16 and 17. But I said no, because you haven't convinced me. I don't see the data that says the risk of this vaccine are less than the benefits. Um, and, and so I need to know that. People need to know that. So then when we got, so I, I shared that with people at FDA and that were on the advisory committee organization and other people were feeling that too, that that day was just a time crunch, um, that questions were not being answered, uh, not even being asked. It was almost as if we were supposed to rubber stamp this thing and say, okay, go do this. So it wasn't, my no was not an absolute no, it was a no, not yet. So that mm-hmm. had been voiced by the time a week later that Moderna came up and the whole process was changed just that there was lots more time to ask questions. Um, the Moderna group who had designed a different study, they had been studying messenger RNA vaccines for over 10 years. So they just simply applied it to COVID. They had set up a really good study. They, they had not looked at infection, but they had the samples. They had taken the samples where they could look at that. So they'll have that data. Whereas to my knowledge, Pfizer had not done that. So they had, they just presented a completely different, transparent uh, appeal and, and data set that said to me they cared about people. They had over 42% of people with underlying conditions in their study, like people who are going to be out here. Uh, they had done many things that, that showed that they were trying to get to a a working vaccine for people, not just trying to satisfy the criteria to get something on the market. And so for me, they, mm-hmm. they were a yes, because blocking disease up to 95% is a, is, is a great place to start for trying to get a handle on COVID. And both vaccines do mm-hmm. that. So I, I highly recommend that if it works for people and their circumstances, they should get the vaccine. So uh, Dr. Lopez has been very active on the front line of helping uh, to bridge the discourse around some of the um, healthy cultural paranoia of concerns and fear around taking the vaccine. And so I- I'm wondering if you could just start out by kind of uh, why you believe that people should consider taking um, the vaccine. Yeah, I think for me, um, my take is very similar to Dr. Fuller's is I, I, w- I, I would love for people to take the vaccine to avoid from them be- getting sick enough to need the hospital to need my care. My philosophy around patient care is I'm not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. I want you to have all the information mm-hmm. possible so that you can make the right decision mm-hmm. for yourself and make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I do those things, I, I say, I, this is my experience with the vaccine. This is what I know. Th- this is how it has been approved or how, how things have been done. Um, I've, I've, I've read the New, New England Journal of Medicine um, papers on these vaccines, and um, I'm going to translate it for you, or at least the, the big bulks of information so that I can give you my experience, at least in my experience as someone who understands and 
has studied the history behind aggressions that have happened against black and brown communities and other communities uh, from the medical institution. It's just part of medical history. I know that providing them information and as much transparency as I can to help make those decisions for themselves is important. So I will say, hey, these are the common side effects. This is what I experienced. It's not everyone's experience. I did not experience X, Y, Z. And these are common questions. Feel free to send me questions. Um, Just trying to be as transparent as possible. I I really would love to see people get vaccinated, but if if it's the right choice for them. So you were vaccinated, Dr. Lopez, yes? Yes, I received both doses already. Right. And did you do Pfizer, Moderma, or... Uh, is it okay uh, we, have, to share? we have Pfizer available at my institution. Okay. And it sounds like you took both vaccines without a hitch, some soreness of your arm. And I know this because I follow you on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, I, I did my due diligence to read up on the information that I mm-hmm. had. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that information is going to change, or at least we're going to continue to get more data, more information. Um, I think the one thing that I've learned from this pandemic is we can't know everything about everything. Um <laughs> You know, people get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, patients get frustrated because, like, first you told me no masks. Now you're telling me masks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I tell them is, like, unfortunately, that's part of the scientific process. Mm-hmm. We learn more every day, which means our recommendations are going to change. For me, at least the information that I saw from the, the medical journal, journals I was reading and the conversations I was having with um, other colleagues, was that this, especially with my infectious disease colleagues, um, was that this was going to be safe. And um, I still don't know if it, we still don't have the the data to say it prevents the spread of it. Mm -hmm. But I know that if I'm going to be there to take care of my patients, I need to be protected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. I I, I appreciate that. Um, So as a hospitalist, um, and so the vaccine's been given out now. I guess what, by the time that this airs, that it'll be well over a month. Have you seen anybody come into the hospital, Dr. Lopez, who has really um, suffered because of the vaccine, who has had that type of adverse um, impact? Uh, those I, I have not personally seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there there was a case of anaphylaxis at one of the other Chicago area hospitals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I took that very seriously because I'm someone who goes anaphylactic with shrimp and shellfish. Oh, okay. Um, so, <laughs> you know, looking into those ingredients, making sure I had no issues. They say the 15 minute, you know, waiting period in that waiting area. I stayed a little longer just in case and I was fine. Um, but personally at my hospital or at least colleagues that have had adverse reactions, nothing <laughs> outside of the normal fever, yes. body aches. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. You wanted to add something, Dr. Fuller, to the end of what you said. So I want to make space for that because I have another question I I want to ask. Yes. So about getting the vaccine, um, Mm -hmm. I, as I said, I'm a huge advocate of vaccines. And what I want people to do is to weigh this for themselves. And I want them to take it because it won't have the overall effect on our society if we don't have high uptake. Mm-hmm. And so in yes. making that decision, however, I want people to be comfortable. So what I have said. Can I pause, can I pause you just there for a yeah. second? Because I, I want you to understand what Dr. Fuller is saying. So in order for the vaccine itself to be effective, this whole notion of herd immunity. So 70 percent of us need to take the vaccine for it actually to be worthwhile for all of us. Is what yeah. I read this morning. Yeah. 
Okay. There you go. So, so if it is to ultimately reduce the impact of coronavirus, the larger population needs to be immune for long term. We don't know how long the immunity lasts. So this is very important. We are in two experiments. <laughs> you know, we black folks <laughs> says, you know, anybody gonna make a guinea pig out of me, right? That's right. right. I'm not gonna mm-hmm. be anybody's guinea pig. But That's we right. all we are all in this case experimental um, elements because we don't understand this virus. So the whole world is in an experiment with a mm-hmm. virus that we've never seen before. It's called novel Corona- for a reason. Coronavirus, yeah, coronavirus <laughs> SARS-2 is a novel virus we've never seen before. We don't know how it does what it does. We don't know what it's going to do next. We don't know a lot about it. So we're living the experiment. Then you have a vaccine that has is not like any previous vaccines that we've ever had in terms of its platform as well as what it does. We know it stops disease, but we don't know that it stops infection. We don't know the long-term effects. We do know the short-term effects, and they're they can be difficult or not, but they are manageable. If you know what's coming at you, you know what to expect. You can deal with them. So either way we look at it, it's an experiment. One experiment, COVID, can kill you or kill people you love because you carry the virus to them. It is not something you want to do. And here's something that protects you. The vaccine, there's some unknowns about it. But for the most part, as we can tell in the time we've looked in this experiment, it's, it, it does not cause any great detrimental uh, impact, but it does protect you against what I say is you, you wake up and there's a, you're standing on a train track and you look down the train and there's a train coming. That's the virus, right? You have to decide, am I going to stand here and possibly get hit or, or am I going to jump off the track, but I can't see what I'm jumping into completely because mm-hmm. it's dark out there. That's the mm-hmm. vaccine. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying right now, the good thing to do is to move off the track so that you don't hit by this known train, this known danger that's coming down the track. And so what I was going to quickly say is that I want transparency to know as much as what we know. And as, as Dr. Lopez says, it's a scientific process in this experiment. There's a lot we just don't know. We can't tell you and it may change. But my 96-year-old mother who passed in May from some other causes, um, if she were in her home in North Carolina, she lived alone, I would say, mom, as soon as you come up for the vaccine, let's go get it now. I'll come down there and I'll take you to get it. Or I'll even call your doctor and say, how quickly can you get my mom in? Because her risk at 96 year old were much higher than my risk. And so I would want her to get it immediately, if not yesterday. Um, so what I'm saying is you have to look at your circumstances. And for most people at this point, it is so much better to get the vaccine than to risk the dangers of COVID. And if we want to look at the whole society, we need that high uptake, even if it's not your typical vaccine that we know is going to protect for 10 years. We need to to use it as much as possible as long as we have protection to help us get through this difficult time. So how how long would you will you wait? Um, I'm actually signed up. I'm on the list of people. I'm just waiting for a date when the vaccine is here. So when I signed in through our university, it said, do you want to take it? I said, yes. And then um, it's like whenever it comes, comes, it actually, I I could have taken, I could have signed up last week, but I didn't at the moment that I saw it. And when I went back in to do it, I couldn't sign up because they were Mm -hmm. all taken. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you, I felt really badly. It's like someone says the train came, it left the left 
the station and you didn't get on it. Mm-hmm. So now you missed the train. It's like, well, next time I won't miss that train. Right. When right. I go in, I'm going to sign up for an actual date. Mm-hmm. And I don't want our people, black and brown people, to be standing at the train station waiting for another train to come with this vaccine or a way out of COVID mm-hmm. when the vaccine is already here and we need to take that opportunity. Very good. And I know, and I think it's important to note here for our listeners that even though we are vaccined, it's also very important to continue to stay six feet away, to continue to mask. Uh, and so you still act in all the ways that you need to, especially given this new strand of the virus that's coming. Absolutely. Um, that, that, that's now present. And I'm wondering if each of you would really speak to that a little bit and what your, what your thoughts are around that. Um, well, I, I think um, I'm, def- I'm not a virologist. But uh, I will say that I think when I heard about about the variant strain in in the UK and elsewhere, I think a lot of us in the healthcare community knew that it was only a matter of time that there was Mm going to be a variant. Mm -hmm. But when I heard that it was more transmissible, the only thought that went in my head was like, Lord, God, please don't let that strain come here, because between something that's more transmissible and just the American way of not wanting to wear a mask, it was a, it's a formula for disaster in my mind, especially for our hospitals. Um, we have recently heard in the last day or so that the strain is here in Chicago. It's probably been here longer than before. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's still worrisome because, you know, not everyone is doing their due diligence to take the precautions we know can help. Um, so it definitely is a source of stress for a mm-hmm. lot of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right. That strain inevitably, whenever we have a virus that transmits like this, a respiratory transmitted virus, and it's a global pandemic already, you know that something shows up in Great Britain or South Africa, it's not going to be two seconds later, it's going to be here, mm-hmm. it's going to be all over the world. And it is mm-hmm. more transmissible. Fortunately, it looks like at the moment, the vaccine covers it. But the nature of these viruses is that they are evolving all the time and only the changes that are an advantage to the virus actually come through when we see in society. So it is going to continue to change. And the only way to stop that is to stop its replicating. Every time it replicates in any cell of our body, it has an opportunity to change. The only way to stop that is to stop giving it the opportunity to reproduce. The only way to do that is to mask up keep the virus from infecting, get the vaccine, which still may not stop the infections, but at least it'll stop, um, hopefully, some of the difficulties in managing the infection. So yeah, we're going to probably see some different strains, and some of them may not be uh, covered by this vaccine, which was designed to cover the spike protein, which is constant uh, on all these viruses. But yeah, we, we really have not, and and I'll go back, I haven't said this, but I'll say that what distresses me most, I I know Dr. Lopez in the hospitals, you see your patients and you just, you know, it's very tough. But what stresses me most is to see the numbers go up when we're telling people, stay home, don't travel over Thanksgiving or Christmas, don't go see your relatives, don't get together with your friends. This isn't forever, this is just now. Don't host a major protest march. Don't and don't be, host be a mask. I mean, I mean, just as a hypothetical. Just uh, just as a hypothetical, if you're in mm-hmm. if you're in a room with other people, be kind enough to wear a mask in case you are asymptomatically infected. That's just love your brother as yourself, or love your sister as yourself. And we have in America, we have been so bad with this. We have 
done such a poor job of doing those things that are readily in front of us because we're so used to our independence and doing what we want to do when we want to do it and having nobody affect our freedoms. I mean, that really gets me worked up. That that makes me mad. And I'm like, people are dying in hospitals, are filled. And I'm thinking, you know what, people, we got to get out of this, but you cannot be hard-headed. We're supposed to go into whatever space we can When we're out of those spaces, we have to wear a mask, we have to distance and make sure the virus doesn't get an opportunity to reproduce. And we've done such a poor job of that. Mm -hmm. Even with the vaccine, the best thing we could do is to follow the public health preventions. That would be more powerful along with the vaccine or than the vaccine. The vaccine is going to prevent deaths, but doing that would prevent infections, which prevent deaths. And I'm, I'm so, dis, I'll just say it, I'm disgusted with America mm. for not doing what we could do to keep this from taking over everybody's lives and having us lose people. Understood. Definitely understood. So as we think about um, your experiences, why should people consider not taking the vaccine? If there is a reason or situations The people that should not take it are people who have known allergies to previous injections of Mm -hmm. vaccines or or people. And and this is something, and and Dr. Lopez, I'm sure you can comment on this even better, but people who have known allergies where they have anaphylactic responses, um, you need to consult with your physician, your healthcare provider to say, is this something that I should not take or is this the things that are in this vaccine not going to trigger me. And when I do go there, take whatever you take normally to counter a reaction with you. Um, Plan to remain at the site long enough to make sure if there's going to be a reaction, you see it. Plan to to enroll in the CDC um, surveillance afterwards such that if anything does happen, you have a ready way of letting somebody know such that can be communicated. So these are things that you must do. So, so the people, I, I think it's essential to consult with your physician who hopefully is going to be informed. But we know also not all health providers are informed either. I've heard that many times. Dr. Lopez, let me be quiet and let you take this because this is what you do. Yeah. Um, so I, I think one of the things that I've really appreciated has been that the transparency around the, the actual ingredients in each vaccine, um, because you know, I, I definitely had to give that a serious thought because I know I do have an anaphylactic reaction to something else, not anything in the ingredients, but I knew, I don't, like I said, I, I didn't know if I was going to have a reaction myself, um, but I went prepared and I let them know. Um, I have my little, I have like, it's, it should be a makeup bag, but really it's just a little kit of medicines and Benadryl and Claritin and my EpiPen. Um but, uh, you know, I took those with me. And so I have that conversation. It's it's that conversation of what's the risk and what's the benefit? Does the benefit outweigh the risk? Um, and that's the conversation everyone should be having with their physicians. Um, and also knowing that the CDC, um, once you get your vaccine, they give you a paper, there's a little QR code, you scan it on your phone, and you tell them they, you'll get a daily text message. You register, you get a daily text message that'll ask you, did you feel, did you feel fevers and chills? Did it keep you from going to work? Did you have to seek medical care? So you know that not only did you have that conversation with your physician, but it, like Dr. Fuller mentioned, someone knows that there's an adverse reaction that may have occurred. 
um, so that we can keep track of some of those, or at least someone is aware of those, or it's, it'll tell you to seek medical care. Um, so definitely having those conversations about benefits and risk ratios for individuals. There are also people with underlying immune issues like people with lupus or multiple sclerosis or, or active HIV that have to really strongly consider uh, transplant patients. Those people have to tr strongly consider what you do with any vaccine. Is this the time to get it? Um, and to time it just right if they're indeed going to get it. Mm, nice. So I'm going to pivot us one more time to a question that I ask every single guest on the podcast. Um, and I, I would love to hear both of you respond to this. <clears throat> and the question is, what's the one piece of advice that you would give to white people in dealing with people of color in, in STEM and medicine to be more inclusive? Just one? <laughs> <laughs> well... For the purposes of the for the purposes of the podcast, Dr. Lopez, you want to start us? Yeah. Um, so I think. Oh gosh, how do I word this? Uh, there's so many words I want to say, but I think one of my roles, aside from ad, for from advocating for our, our diverse patient populations, is also advocating to bring more people like us into these spaces, mm. and so. For me, when I sit on some of those boards where we're saying, do we accept this candidate or not? I think for me, it's when working with individuals, it's, it's not just our, it's not just the diversity of the color of our skin. It's the diversity of our experiences, mm -hmm. um, our distance traveled. And so when looking at it, you know, I'm just not my, the color of my skin and, you know, I'm not just the Spanish speaker there. There's a whole diversity. It's a holistic approach um, that should be taken with everyone, not just me, everyone. Um, and so, you know, everyone will have something to say. We may not be at the table, but we have something important to say. And so we need to, um, we need to support the, those voices and we need to amplify those voices um, and take those voices seriously because they do have something to say. Beautiful. Dr. Fuller. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of what to say here. I'm reminded of when I was first hired at Michigan coming from the university of Chicago and I was recruited to a number of places. Um, and my husband and I had three choices Um we finally chose Michigan, uh, three final choices. And the president at that time held a reception for new faculty. And, and so when I met him, he said, oh, so you're a Vita Fuller. I'm like, yeah. So I'm so glad you're here. And I was like first surprised that he knew me, right? He knew my name. But apparently, I, I don't know how that had happened. But um, he said, well, I'm really glad you're here. And so I said, well, why? And he said, da, 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 da. And I said, well, why? And I kept saying why. He's an engineering professor. And he said, because I realized that as an engineer, we're all on the same planet. We're all on one ship. And that I want this ship to float for a long time. And that in order to make that happen, I need around me people who have different perspectives than I do, who have different experiences than I do, who see things from a different lens than I do. And I want you here because you are going to help all of us see things in ways that we can't see it based on our experiences. 
And so for that reason, um, it is important that you are part of the faculty at the University of Michigan. So when, when you ask me what is the piece of advice I'd give to white people or people in STEM, it's that see me. Mm-hmm. See me. See me, as uh, was just said, not that I'm an African-American or not that I'm a woman or not that I grew up on a farm or not that I came from the University of Chicago and the University of North Carolina, places that you approve of, but see what I bring and hear what I say and respect that there are many others like me and that we're all in this thing together. Uh, Dr. King said uh, something like, um, help us to understand that we're, I'm not going to get it right, but we're all brothers and sisters and that we'll either learn to live together as brothers and sisters or we'll die together Mm -hmm. like fools, Mm -hmm. as fools. And so realize that we do need one another, um, mm-hmm. that, that I make you better, you make me better. There's no supremacy in any of us. We are all mm-hmm. people seeking to be who we are made to be, and there are different gifts and graces in each of us. So just see me and appreciate me as another person. I don't have to separate out my being African-American. That's part of me. I don't mm-hmm. have to separate my being tall. That's part of me. And accept that just like I see you for who you are, and you're no greater than I am. That That's, again, what I bring from my childhood is that, you know, all God loves all his children or her children, right? So see me and appreciate me for who I am. Um, and that might put you out of your comfort zone sometimes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Beautiful. Well, I want to just thank you so much. I've learned so much today, and I've been encouraged by both your stories and the knowledge that you've you've shared with with our listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. This is a great idea. I I hadn't quite put together. This is being the dot, but I got it now. (laughs) Very good. It's been a true honor. This episode was edited by Nikki Anderson. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davidsdeliciousdelights.com. davidsdeliciousdelights.com. Custom made, personalized cakes, pies, cookies, and pastries made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davidsdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $34.99 or more. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.